Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Bought at a Price. All right, well, while Paul was on his third missionary journey, he was enjoying some very fruitful ministry over in the city of Ephesus. So while he was in Ephesus ministering to the saints there, he got a very disturbing message. The disturbing message came from Corinth over in modern-day southern Greece. And it came specifically from Chloe's household. Chloe was a member of the church of Corinth that the Apostle Paul started about four years previous to this ministry in Ephesus. And so when he's in Ephesus and he receives a message, it's around AD 55, but four years earlier, around AD 51, is when he started the church of Corinth. So he gets this disturbing message and it caused Paul to absolutely shake his head in unbelief. He found out from Chloe's household that the believers in the church that he started had kind of gotten off track, not kind of, but a lot. You see, ever since Paul left Corinth, the church took a turn for the worst, and now they were dealing with all these problems. And you remember in our former studies what those problems were. The problems were envy in the church, strife, divisions, lawsuits, sexual immorality, unbiblical divorces, the abuse of Christian liberties, the abuse of spiritual gifts, the abuse of the Lord's communion table, and doctrinal error. And so sadly, even though the believers in the church of Corinth were saved, right, because you guys know better than, better than most that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? We're all clear on that, right? So even though the believers in Corinth were saved, they weren't really moving forward in the faith. Somehow, along the way, they got stuck. Now, we live in Florida. In the summer months, not so much this year, but usually it rains a lot in the summer months, and our swales in our front yard tend to fill up with water. Now, that can be a problem if you parked your car in the swale. How many of you guys have ever been stuck in the swale of your front yard? Right? A couple hands. Um, so you know what it's like to have a soggy swale because of the rain in the summer months. Your swale, my swale, can be soggy uh, for many days. And it's no fun getting stuck. It's no fun pushing your accelerator and trying to go somewhere, but you're not moving. It's no fun with your, 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 your wheels spinning and yet you're not making any forward progress. It's especially no fun when you make the mistake of asking a couple neighbors to come give you a push and mud flies up and gets them dirty. And so when you think about the church of Corinth, the believers in that church, it's like they're a car stuck in a soggy Florida swale. They were spinning their wheels but they weren't moving forward in the faith. They were spinning their wheels and a lot of people were getting a mud bath because of the poor choices they were making. A lot of people were getting dirty inside and outside of the church because of the stupid, idiotic choices that these believers, some of these believers were making. The question is, are you moving forward in your faith or are you stuck? 
Maybe when you got saved, man, you were flying down the road of discipleship. Maybe you were just, man, you were in fifth gear and you were moving down the road as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. But then out of nowhere, something happened. And now this morning, you find yourself in a place of, of immobility. You find yourself in a place where you're stuck. And maybe, who knows what it is, maybe it's something that's going on in your life that happened 2,000 years ago in the believers in the church of Corinth in their lives. Maybe you gave in um, to jealousy and maybe you started to envy somebody or compare yourself with somebody else. By the way, the Bible says it's dumb to compare yourself with others. You are responsible just to do what God has called you to do and you shouldn't compare yourself to other people. Or maybe you got stuck in the mud of strife. Something happened, an issue came up, and you didn't see eye to eye with a brother or sister in Christ or maybe someone outside the faith, and you just went at it, and you got into an argument and strife, and you got in the flesh, and you said things you shouldn't have said. You did things that now you regret. You're stuck. Maybe you got stuck in the mud of sexual immorality. How many of you guys understand that born-again Christians can get involved in sexual immorality? Absolutely. And because of that dumb choice, you're stuck and you're not moving forward in the faith. Maybe you bought into some doctrinal error or maybe you're going through life and you got hit with this trial out of nowhere and it so changed your life and now you're disillusioned about whether God exists or whether if he does exist, if he's really a good God or not. Whatever it might be, maybe it's something I just said, maybe it's something um, only you and the Lord know, but here's what's, what's true. This morning, you're stuck. You're not moving forward in the faith. Now, I'm here to tell you today that the only thing that will dry up the swale of your life and give you the traction you need to move forward again, the only person that can dry up the swale of your life is the Son of righteousness, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N of righteousness, Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The answer is not some pastor giving you 10, um, a list of 10 things that you can do to have your best life now. That's not the answer at all. The answer is always in a person, capital P, Jesus Christ. And he is the son of righteousness, and he will rise with healing in his wings, and he will give you what you need to move forward again. Will you let him shine down on your life again? That's the question. Will you allow the warmth and light of his word to shine down on your life? Once again, to give you the traction that you need to get out of that mud, to get unstuck. Let's find out what the mud was that the church of Corinth was in up to their knees here in chapter 6. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, dare. Okay, that sets the tone for the whole chapter. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous? The idea there is the unsaved, the unredeemed, the heathen, the pagans. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous? unrighteous and not before the saints. You see, Paul could hardly believe his ears when he got the, the, the report from Chloe's household. 
He could hardly believe his ears when he found out that Christians were suing Christians in the church of Corinth. Now, before we move on, you got to understand that he's not talking about criminal court cases in verse 1. He's talking about civil court cases. When it comes to criminal activity, the Bible is very clear. Check it out some day later in Romans chapter 13. But the Bible is very clear that God has appointed the governing authorities to arrest and prosecute and sentence and imprison people who choose to get involved in criminal activity. Romans 13.4 says that God has appointed the governing authorities as his ministers executing wrath on evildoers and they do not bear the sword in vain. And Paul says, if you're involved in criminal activity, you should be afraid. And by the way, are you thankful for the police officers here in poor St. Lucie and St. Lucie County that put their lives on, on the line every day for you and me. We should thank them. We should thank them even louder right now for our men and women in uniform who put their lives on the line. Absolutely. They're underpaid, absolutely. And they put their lives on the lane, line every day for us. So thank a police officer today. But Paul wasn't talking about criminal activities. In verse 1, he's talking about civil court issues, disputes over contract issues, property issues, inheritance issues, and that kind of thing. And so let's regroup. Here in the first half of chapter 6, and today we're going to look at the first half, and then put your seatbelts on, ladies and gentlemen, the second half is coming. We're going to look at the first half, first of all. So what was the mud that the believers in the church of Corinth were stuck in there in the first half of chapter 6 that was hindering their forward motion for Christ? What was the mud they were stuck in that was causing other people to get really dirty? And it was the mud of pride, greed, and vengeance. And so that's your first point today, just three points today. Pride, greed, and vengeance will hinder us from moving forward in our faith. He's writing to believers. The Bible says that God will complete in you what he started around Philippians 1.6. But you need to know that that takes your cooperation. And so it was either... All three of these things, or one or two of the three things, that was causing the believers to sue one another in the church of Corinth. Pride and or greed and or vengeance. And so in ancient Greece, you need to know that the courts, the court system was famous. The judges there in ancient Greece, and so Corinth being one of the cities, was like all the other cities, Athens, et cetera, et cetera. But in those, in those cities, the judges would sit on what's known as the Bema seat. And the Bema seat was located in the public marketplace. And that's where they heard their, their civil court issues, the, the court cases, right there in public. And so when the believers sued each other there in Corinth, everybody and anybody could hear all about what the Christians were squabbling over in the city of Corinth. And so what's so sad is that some of the believers in the church, 
their egos were so big and their greed was so great and their vengeance was so intense that they were actually willing to air their dirty laundry by taking their civil disputes with other believers before unsaved judges in the public marketplace for everyone to hear. And the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in verse one, how dare you? And he said, in essence, in verse five, shame on you. See, Paul couldn't understand why in the world they would go to law before unsaved people instead of the saints. Paul's attitude was, hey, can't you settle your civil disputes in the privacy of the church instead of going public to the court system there in Corinth? Verse two is fascinating to me. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Man, that's a loaded statement right there. Fascinating statement right there. By the way, what is a saint? Is it a hero from the past the church decided to canonize now that that person's dead? Not always, maybe. But did you know that if you've turned from your sins and if you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, did you know the Bible calls you a saint? And so what he says here in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And so when in the world are the saints going to judge the world? The answer is, when Jesus comes back. Now, I told you before, eschatology is my favorite um, a topic, my favorite subject when it comes to theology. And I thank God that I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor because I'm under the discipline of choosing a book of the Bible prayerfully and then going through that book verse by verse. I'm so glad that I'm under that discipline because I love end time things so much. If I wasn't under that discipline, you guys would hear an end times message at least three Sundays out of four every month. <laughs> but guess what? Verse two says, we're gonna judge the world. And so I get to explain a little bit of what that means that has to do with the end times. When's that gonna happen? When Jesus comes back. I love Old Testament prophecies that predicted the coming of the Messiah. There's hundreds of them. Now, in the Old Testament, they couldn't discern between a first and second coming of the Messiah. They thought he was just going to come, set up his kingdom, and that was going to be it. But now, on the other side of the cross, we now understand there's two comings of the Messiah. And so, in a lot of those Old Testament prophecies, there's a near fulfillment, and then there's a far fulfillment. For example, don't turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we talk about this every Christmas. It says, for unto us... A child is born. Unto us, a son is given. That was written 700 years before Jesus Christ walked on the planet. When was that fulfilled? 2,000 years ago when he came. That's the near fulfillment. But did you know there's a far fulfillment that goes on in that same uh, verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7? It goes on to say, not only for unto us a child is born, not only unto us a son is given, but it goes on, listen to this, and the government will be upon his shoulder. 
Let me ask you something right now. Does our planet as it exists right now, does the government rest on the shoulders of Jesus Christ? No, far from it. But just as true as the first part of the prophecy, just like the first part of the prophecy was fulfilled and a son came, a child was given. So the second part of the prophecy absolutely will be filled and the government in the future will rest on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He's coming to a theater near you. He's coming back. Literally, not spiritually, not allegorically. He's coming back literally. When he comes back, the government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Tell that to the dude that knocks on your door on Saturday and tries to give you a Watchtower magazine. His name is Mighty God, not some angel, not Michael the Archangel. Jesus is not a created angel. He's the Mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. And if you put your trust in a created angel, that created angel can't save you. Therefore, if you are in the false religion called Jehovah Witnesses, you're, you're going to have a big wake-up call when you die. You need to come out of that cult and start believing who Jesus really is, who the scriptures say he is. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. <laughs> of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David. David, Jew or Gentile? Help me out. Jew. What country did David rule over? Israel. When Jesus comes back, he's called the son of David. Jesus absolutely was a Jew, and he's coming back to rule over Israel and the whole world. That's what the scripture teaches. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. And so after Jesus returns, he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule over the world, but the world's a big place. And so he's decided to give us as saints the joy of being his co-regents. We're going to rule with him. Check out another, pro another prophecy in Daniel. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. By the way, it doesn't say the kingdom of heaven. Right? Jesus, the throne of David is not the throne that Jesus is sitting on right now in heaven. He's coming back to this earth. So the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the who? Saints of the Most High. How many saints are in here? Please raise your hand. Now, I have to remind you of something because you may be new to the Bible. But you got to understand that salvation is not a reward. It is a gift. And so we understand that salvation, as I said earlier, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when someone understands that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, they turn from their sins, they accept Christ as their only hope of salvation. What happens is they're saved. They're going to the kingdom. But just because you go to the kingdom doesn't mean you're going to rule in the kingdom. And so what you do after you receive Christ as your Savior, what you do after that until the day you die... 
how faithful you are to the Lord is going to determine what you do in the kingdom age. Jesus said some are going to rule over 10 cities and others are going to rule over five cities. I kind of these days like Asheville, North Carolina. I change it every year, don't I? Depends on what city that I'm in. And I was in uh, Asheville recently and I saw the mountains and I thought this would be a nice place to be a co-regent for Christ in the kingdom age. Now, you may be new to the Bible and you may be thinking, well, who in the world are we going to rule over? But what you got to understand is this. Church family, help, help those who are new to the Bible out here, okay? What is the next event on God's prophetic calendar? It's called the, the rapture of the church. Harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin Vulgate. We're going to be snatched up out of here. And that is going to be followed by a seven-year period. Don't turn there now. You'll never figure it out. I'll, I'll teach on it later. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's the 70 weeks of Daniel, the weeks, Shabua in the Hebrew. It's a week of years, not a week of days. 69 of those seven-year periods have already passed. There is one seven-year period still in the future. And one day, it's described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, one day the tribulation is going to come upon this world like birth pains on a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. They shall not escape because we're out of here. And now, now listen to this. So during those seven years, because of the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and because of the witness of the two witnesses, Millions of people are going to get saved during the tribulation. Why? Because our God is a God of mercy Amen. and love and grace. And some of them are going to lose their heads. But some of them are actually going to survive until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they, the survivors, are going to enter into the kingdom age in their human bodies. These are the sheep in Matthew 25. They're going to enter into the millennial reign of, of the son of David in their human bodies. They're going to fall in love. They're going to get married. They're going to have kids. They're going to fill the earth. You and I are already in our resurrected bodies. We received our glorified resurrected body at the rapture. And so we, if we've been faithful to the Lord, we will rule as Christ's co-regents over those human beings during the thousand-year reign of Christ in the future. Part of the job description of being a ruler is we're going to judge. And so we will arbitrate, help arbitrate matters over our area of the globe, whatever city or cities the Lord assigns to you and to me. And so you thought we're going to be floating around on clouds in some kind of ethereal realm as little plump angels with halos over our heads, strumming harps, being bored out of our minds. Where'd you get that from? It's certainly not in here. No, the kingdom age will be an age of great activity and great joy as we serve as Christ's co-regents. It's going to be awesome. And you, you might say, Pastor Mike, I just want to get some rest. What is all this ruling stuff? Well, don't forget, you're going to be in a resurrected, eternal, glorified body. You won't need any rest. Jesus is our rest. And so, in verse 2, look at it again. He says, do you not know the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? In other words, you're going to be a co-regent with Christ in the next life, making judgments about various things in the next life. Aren't you able to make some judgments about the smallest of matters in this life? He says in verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? We're going to judge angels. Now, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about this. So we can speculate a little bit. But I know you do not come to church to hear my speculation. So I'll be very brief. There is an argument, a debate between scholars over whether we are going to judge holy angels or unholy angels in the next life. I tend to agree with those scholars who think it's unholy angels. And here's my opinion, okay? I'm not teaching out of this right now. Here's my opinion. My opinion is that those demons that were assigned to destroy you and your spouse and your kids and get you off track and make you a nominal, impotent, weak Christian... I believe as God judges them in the next life that we're going to be part of that judgment. And that's my opinion, okay? And so I told you I'd be brief. Let's stick with God's word. Look at verse 4. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before who? The unbelievers. And so Paul's attitude here is, man, isn't there at least one wise person in the church who can help arbitrate these matters? And yet you'd rather air your dirty laundry before the world to see. What a sad testimony. He says in verse 7, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Paul's attitude here is, man, if you decide to take your brother or sister in Christ, to civil court before unsaved judges. If that's your decision, you have utterly failed before you even walk in the courtroom. And even if you win the case, you have utterly failed. Why? Because you allowed pride to win the day. You allowed greed to win the day. You allowed vengeance to win the day. Wouldn't it have been better if you just followed the Lord Jesus who said, love one another as I have loved you? Wouldn't it have been better if you followed the Lord Jesus as he said in Matthew 5, 39, to turn the other cheek? But you may be right now in your heart stomping your feet and saying, Pastor Mike, you don't understand. He cheated me. He owes me money. Well, look again at the bottom of verse 7. At the end of verse 7, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And so maybe you're here today, and maybe you're thinking about suing another born-again believer. And so before you do that, let me just encourage you. Let me exhort you. Before you do that, will you die to your ego? 
Will you die to your pride? Will you die to any feelings of greed? Well, I can get a big old settlement, Pastor Mike. Will you die to that? Will you die to any feelings of vengeance that you have inside of yourself? If there's a person in this church that you're disputing with, here at Calvary, poor St. Lucie, a brother or sister in Christ that you're having to dispute with, why don't you just follow what Jesus said? We, we taught on it three or four weeks ago in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. You go to that person in prayer and humility alone. And you talk to that person alone. And if that doesn't work, Jesus said, go get a mature brother or sister and go back to that person privately. Don't talk about it publicly. Then if that still doesn't work, why don't you grab one of our five, soon to be six elders or one of our pastors, bring them in privately and to see if that can help in the arbitration. But man, I think Paul's words as the Holy Spirit spoke through him are very clear. Second half of chapter six, put your seatbelts on. If you're ready, say amen. amen. Verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Some of your translations say, nor effeminate or homosexuals. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, on the flow of the context, what Paul is saying is when you choose to sue a brother or sister in Christ, you're taking your civil dispute before an unsaved magistrate, a guy who will not even inherit the kingdom of God, and yet you're going to him for wisdom? That's the flow of the context. But now Paul switches gears to describe the lifestyle of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whether you're a judge, whether you're a lawyer, or whether you're the average Joe, it doesn't matter. Here's the lifestyles. I want, I want everybody to say lifestyle. Go ahead. Okay, this, he's not talking about a born-again Christian who falls into a sin, then repents genuinely and comes back to the Lord. Okay, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about someone who lives this kind of lifestyle. And when you live this kind of lifestyle, the list in verses 9 and 10 of 10 things, when you live that kind of lifestyle, you're showing the evidence that you were never saved to begin with. You may have said a little prayer 50 times, but if you're an adulterer, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But I, I think this is so serious especially in this age that we're living in, in the West, that we define each term in verses 9 and 10. And so please look at verse 9. He says, first of all, fornicators. That's any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. And so right now, maybe you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't think there's anything wrong with it. You are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Can I be any more clear than that? 
and you say, Pastor Mike, you got to be careful. You're going to lose half the church. Listen, I told you before, I don't want to be a mega church if it's going to cost this church from being a healthy New Testament body of believers. So you need to get that right before the Lord. Hopefully right now, if the Holy Spirit does live inside of you, he's giving you some conviction and saying, get that right. And if you don't know the Lord, hopefully right now you're, you're admitting, I, don't, I guess I don't really know the Lord. And you're going to turn from your sins and accept the love of Jesus Christ into your life. But fornicators, not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters, those who worship false gods. Adulterers, uh, one who has unlawful intercourse with the spouse of another. That's Vine's expository dictionary for words. Now, homosexuals and sodomites. Again, some of your translations, effeminate and homosexuals. The first word there, homosexual or, or effeminate, that first word describes within the homosexual sex relationship, it describes the, the man who takes the female or passive role. That's what the, the Greek original word means. The second word in New King James is homosexual. In NASB, it's, um, I'm sorry, New King James is sodomite. NASB, it's homosexual. That second word describes in the original language the male in the homosexual relationship that takes the male or dominant role in that activity. Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, but the Supreme Court said that we can get married. The Supreme Court is not the supreme being. The creator is the supreme being. And we have to follow his word. Thieves, that means an embezzler. Covetous, one eager to have more, especially what belongs to others. I'm getting a lot of these definitions from Blue Letter Bible, which is a great resource to go in there, click on the original word in the Greek, find out what it means. Drunkards. We don't need to dig into the Greek word, do we? Friday night, if you get blitzed, wake up Saturday morning hugging the toilet with a hangover. The next Friday, you do the same thing. The next Friday, you do the same thing. And then... On Wednesday, you decided to call in sick on Thursday, even though you're not sick because you want to get blitzed on Wednesday night. Listen, if you're, if you're with me, say amen, okay? Amen. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's right there in black and white. But I said a little prayer. Don't be deceived. He says drunkards. He said revilers. That's a railer. He says extortioners, that's a robber. Now these sins were rampant in the Roman Empire. Can you guys think of anywhere else where the sin, these sins are rampant? You're living in it right now. Now homosexuality was an issue in the Roman Empire. David Guzik um, is a Calvary Chapel pastor who wrote a commentary on the Bible. You can get his commentary on Blue Letter Bible. Um, and he also has his own website. His name is David Guzik. My wife and I got to talk to him last week in California at the pastor's conference. But listen to what he says, and I quote, at the very time Paul was writing, Nero was emperor. You ever heard of, of Caesar Nero, anybody? Okay. 
Nero had taken a boy named Sporus and had him castrated. He then married that boy with a full ceremony. He brought him to the palace with a great procession and he made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man and Nero was declared to be the other man's wife. This is the same Nero who hated Christians like you and I so much that he would capture first century Christians. He would impale them through the rectum on a stake. He would put them in his garden. He would cover the Christian with pitch. He would light them on fire and he would get on his horse and ride through his garden screaming and pointing, you are the light of the world. Now it wasn't just Nero. If you have the Ryrie Study Bible, which I have my devotions out of, you know, and I'll just quote Charles Ryrie, that Socrates and 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. Four, the first 14 out of 15 Caesars practiced homosexuality. Now, nobody believes that all homosexuals are as vicious and cruel as the ancient Roman emperors. But here's my point. Whether you're a nice homosexual or whether you're a cruel, vicious homosexual, the, the practice of homosexual sex is a sin in God's eyes. Now, I'm not even talking about same-sex attraction. I'm talking about the act, the sexual act of homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of our creator. And it's not just in the Old Testament, in those obscure passages. It's all over the New Testament. It's right. Paul even describes the two different Greek words to, to describe the two different roles in the sex act. It's in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. You may want to write this down. I don't have time to read it. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Very clear in the New Testament age that homosexuality is a sin before God. Now, let's look at the list again in verses 9 through 10. He says, do not be deceived. Okay, these are the people who live these lifestyles, and they're proving by their lifestyles they've never been born again. He says, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists 10 different sins. Two of them have to do with homosexual activity. Eight of them do not. You say, what's your point? The point, again, I refer to David Guzik up on the screen. Christians err when they excuse homosexuality. And by the way, more and more churches are doing that every Sunday. We had a couple just this past um, first service that came to our church they came back after being gone for four years. They were part of another church or denomination that was wishy-washy on this topic. So they left that church. They're now coming here. But it's churches all over the world that are wishy-washy on this topic. And so Christians err when they excuse homosexuality and deny that it is sin. But, here it is, they also err just as badly when they single it out as a sin God is uniquely angry with. Okay, you got to get that. Two out of a list of 10. What does that mean? That means if you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, don't point your, your finger at a homosexual and condemn them. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God either. 
right? If you're a thief and you're stealing when your boss isn't looking at work, don't point your finger at a homosexual. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God either. And so you got to understand this, ladies and gentlemen, that it's not a sin that God is uniquely angry with, but God's angry with all sins. And the good news is he loves all sinners. Look at verse 11, my favorite verse. And such, I would love to jump up and down. I would love to jump off this platform right now and run around and just get everybody's attention to say this one word, okay? What is the third word in verse 11? One, two, three, go. Were, 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 were. <laughs> Who am I speaking to today? Who's God, who's more important? Who's God speaking to, to today? Were, not are. Because some of you right now are. And God says, no, it's supposed to be were. No more are in the past. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. And some scholars believe that was what some people would say back in the day uh, to justify their sin. He's not saying that all these sins are lawful, okay? In fact, the second part of verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Okay, so such were some of you. The church of Corinth was filled with people. Imagine right now, let's look around, look at all these people, okay? Imagine this was the church of Corinth, okay? It was filled with people who used to be fornicators, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, covetous. But then, guess what happened? Paul came to town, and he shared the glorious gospel of the saving love of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a thought that will blow your mind right there. Paul went to homosexual people. He went to adulterous people. He went to fornicators and, and, and thieves. He went to these people. Why? Because God loves the world. Right? He went to these people. He shared the gospel with them. And when they turned from their sins and received Christ as their Savior, Jesus came. And man, he washed them. He sanctified them. He justified them. And they were a new people. You see, what's the message of the church? The message of the, is, is the message of the church. We're over here, and those sinners are over here. And we're like... Man, you guys are, are going to hell in a handbasket because we're pure as the driven snow, but you're not. So you stay over there and we'll stay over here. Is that the message of God's word, yes or no? No. You know what the message of the people of God is? Hey, guess what? I used to do the same thing. I used to be a mess. I used to be lonely and addicted and empty. And some of you would actually say, I used to be a homosexual. I used to cheat on my wife or my husband. I used to steal from work. I used to do all these things. But guess what? I had a divine encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He changed my life by his grace, and now I'm walking with him. 
Now the Holy Spirit lives inside of me and he's filled the void that I used to try to fill with everything else. Now the Holy Spirit lives inside of me and he's given me a supernatural power to say yes to righteousness and no to to hellish sins. And it's not that anybody is perfect. We're all sinners saved by grace. So that's our message, okay? And so here's, here's the message. God loves everybody, but we will absolutely never compromise his word. I lost my place. We gotta hurry. Verse 13. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. That's another one of those sayings of unsaved people that want to justify their sexual immorality. Food for the stomach and stomach for foods. In other words, sex is just a bodily appetite, just like hunger. Paul says God's going to destroy both it and them. (laughs) Do you guys notice Paul didn't pull punches? Now the body is not for sexual immorality. It's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Okay, food for the stomach and stomach for foods. There was people who were saying, as I said, okay, sex, hey, it's just a bodily appetite. Give into it. Who cares? Everybody's doing it. Hey, what do you do when you're hungry? What do you guys do when you're hungry? Help me out. Okay, now don't help me out on this one. Okay. (laughs) What do you do when you're feeling lustful? They would say, you have sex. You go hook up with your girlfriend. You go look at pornography and then you masturbate. That's what you do. It's just a bodily appetite. If you and your wife aren't getting along and you're really bold, you go down to West Palm Beach and pick up a hooker. It's just a bodily appetite. Everybody's doing it. Pastors are doing it today. Stop being so judgmental. Stop being so condemning. We're all about love in the church. We accept everybody. It's just a bodily appetite. Paul says, no, it's not. Paul says, your body was not made for sexual immorality. And so we got to be so careful, folks, that we don't believe this lie that it's not a moral issue. It's a biological issue. It is absolutely a moral issue. Now, we have a choice in the church. We can either have this arrogant attitude, well, that's outdated. And so I believe, because I don't really, I'm not comfortable with this whole um, um, preaching against sin stuff. And so I have my ideas, and I'm going to put them over God's word. And and that's dangerous. In fact, I feel like I'm going to get struck with lightning right now because I'm doing this. No, 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 this is not what we do. What we do is we put God's word where it belongs. And we do what God says. I worked with a guy who said years ago, he was, a, he was a Christian, he was not a Christian, and he said, I look at pornography, it's art. <laughs> it's no big deal, Mike. And see, now that's the way he soothed his conscience. And that's why Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? We're going to go over a little bit, is that okay? Verse 15 Not everybody said it's okay. (laughs) I'm going to hurry. All right, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know 
that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He's like, what are you doing? This is for marriage. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, flee sexual immorality. Flee, run, get out of there. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. All right, so back in Genesis 39, when Joseph was working in Potiphar's house and his beautiful wife came when nobody was around and grabbed him by his robe and said, make love to me. He said, no. But then day after day, by the way, that'll, that'll wear on a red-blooded male Day after day after day, she kept coming on to him. Finally, she grabs him by the robe. What does Joseph do? Check it out on the screen. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. (laughs) This lady had issues. But he left his garment in her hand and what's the word? He, He fled and ran outside. Now, most temptations were called to stand. But on this one, we're told to run. Why? Can we be honest as a church with each other, okay? Because this is a powerful temptation. This has taken down people more godly than me. Way more godly than me. Taking them down in a moment of weakness. And they're disqualified from ministry for the rest of their life. Or at least in the role they used to play. It's not worth it. Why did Joseph run? Because he knew under every lure is a hook. Here we go fishing. You ever see those beautiful lures in your tackle box? Sometimes they're so beautiful, I want to eat them. (laughs) But behind every lure, there's a hook. And the fish that takes the lure finds himself going somewhere where he doesn't want to go. And if you take the lure, you're going to find yourself going where you don't want to go. And you're going to be paying alimony and child support. You're going to watch some other dude raise your kids. And you're going to have some kind of sexually transmitted disease in your body. Is it really worth it? No. Now, some of you, you've done that, okay? Were. Not are. Were. Jesus loves you. He forgives you. He cleans you. And like he said to the woman taking adultery, go and sin no more. And as the worship team comes out, last two verses. Or do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. You're bought at a price. Jesus paid a price. God bled for you. What are you doing? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You're bought with a price. Jesus paid a debt you and I can't pay. God the Son took on human flesh. Now think about this for a second. He was in heaven on his throne, but he came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's us. God, the eternal, uncreated, holy God, wrapped himself in human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He was 
laid in a feeding trough because there's no room in the inn. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He kept all 613 commandments in God's word perfectly. He reached out to the, more, the poor, the needy, the marginalized. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the ability to walk to the cripples. Love, love, love. And then the ultimate payment. He went to a Roman cross willingly. God went to a Roman cross willingly to pay the debt that you and I could not pay. What was that? Death. You see, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's physical death. That's spiritual death. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so he died, was buried. Three days, he gets up. And he's alive, right? He's alive. What do we do in, that, in response to that kind of love? Do we walk on his word? We think our ideas are better than his? Or do we submit to him? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.